Hey, Renegades, welcome to another episode of the Renegade Trade Investor Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. What is Renegade Trade Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, Ben Gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where once a week I sit down with interesting and successful business people. And I got flipped this podcast with Steve Londo. And I got this book review now that we're going to continue doing. And story time with Jeff, although that's at the end. Possibly a little hint. <clears throat> Maybe story time with Tommy Desmond. Anyway, we are a network right here, Renegade Trade Investor Network, for everything real estate related, mostly investor, but we also started a new series with the, my boss, Joe Delia, here at the Delia Group, Keller Williams, adding lots of value right there. So lots of content, lots of things for your education, your entertainment, and hopefully some sort of amusement. And speaking of which, takes a shit ton of time to do this, folks. Hook a brother up. Make me beg on every podcast, man. We've been stuck at 49 for a long time. That's right, 49 iTunes reviews. Let's make a goal. The next week, let's get 10 more. All right, if you haven't already, go rate and review on iTunes. I know. Do it every week. It's really important, though, and that's one of the ways we can grow the podcast. If you want to listen to this much content and you enjoy it, you have to go rate and review. Give it five stars if you like it and leave a written review. I would really appreciate it. And it really does help out. A lot of you are sharing too, which is awesome. Thank you. Continue to share. If you're not sharing, remember to do your part. I guess that's, I guess that's the point I'm trying to get across here. Do your part, right? You're listening to a free podcast. If it's helpful, if you enjoy it, hook a brother up, right? If you have any uh, comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And guess what? Even if you can't come to the meetings, I stream them live. So if you go and like uh, the Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club, we stream it live so you can watch it there. And guess what? If you can't watch it live while it's happening, I leave the video up, record it so you can watch it there. Guess what? Don't want to watch a video? You can listen to the podcast right here on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or whatever you're listening on. So you got no excuses, all right? Also, if you want to hook up with me on Twitter or Instagram, go to at Jeremy Burgess. And of course, on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. All right. I hate this part. Legal disclaimer. I know. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I and or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend before you make any investment decision decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals and generally grow the fuck up and don't sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investor Show of the Week where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week I went with something from Thomas Edison. Opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. Boom. How true is that? So true. All right. And speaking of which, welcome to part four of the shift. Read along and review. All right. Part four right here. And we're going to go ahead and flip open if you grab your book, The Shift. And we're... uh, 
doing the book, The Shift by Gary Keller. Um, it's a book, uh, it's for real estate agents, but I think it's also for real estate investors. It's for anybody who buys or sells real estate or invests in real estate. And I would say a lot of business too, because I think a lot of business cycles are similar to a real estate cycle. So I just find the book very useful. And we're going to go ahead and start on page 157. We finished last week on page 156. And uh, we're going to go ahead and start right and see. Yeah, we finished right at uh, 156. And we're going to start on page 157. You got your book out? Okay, your highlighter ready? Are you listening? If you can, read what I read, okay? I know I don't, I'm not the best reader in the world either. Uh, obviously, if I keep doing this, I'll get better. But uh, read while I read and you'll learn a lot faster too. All right, so we're starting page 157. Tactic number eight, stand out from the competition. Seller staging strategies. What you see is what you get is one of the common expressions in our society. It is also the first half of one of the great truths in real estate. The other half is and will pay for. Real estate buyers understand this and take it literally. They believe that what they see is all they get and this determines all they'll pay. The challenge sellers constantly face is that very few people have the imagination to visualize beyond what they see. Most buyers are unable to envision how a property will look when it's in its best condition. Even if they could, they rarely see themselves doing it. So someone must do it for them. Smart sellers realize this and work hard to show their home in its best light. When the market shifts and fewer homes are selling, uh, fewer homes are selling, savvy sellers recognize that their home must outshine the competition. They know that to make the house go, it must show. They know that in a shift, it's showtime. Whenever we say price is the number one issue in getting a home sold, what we're really saying is its price must match its condition. Price and condition are irrevocably intertwined. That's so good. You have this happen all the time on wholesale calls, right? Or investor calls when you're doing it. Well, the one down the street sold for 120. Well, sir, uh, it was also brought to the tippy tip of the market, you know, and you have a kitchen from 1962. Price and condition. They're intertwined forever. Back to the book. Priced right means price right for what you get. And overpriced means overpriced for what you get. It's that simple. Staging a home means showing off what you get in that home in the best possible way so the seller gets the best possible price. Staging a home is about dressing it up for success and highlighting its assets. To stage or not to stage. A seller should never ask if they should stage. This is simply the wrong type of thinking and the wrong question. The question they should ask is, how should I stage? Staging is an essential part of the marketing process. It can entice buyers to take a look and perhaps get hooked on a home. This process of preparing a house to put in on the market from simple cleanup or clean out to extensive repairs and improvements always directly impacts how quickly a home will sell and for what price. In a shift, it may determine if it even sells at all. Staging is that important. In fact, a review of more than 2,800 properties in eight cities found that stage homes on average sold in half the time that non-stage homes did. The sellers with stage homes ended up with 6.3% more than their asking price on average. In other words, staging helps get sellers what they want most to sell their homes in the least amount of time for the most amount of money. 
The significance of staging really stands out when you consider our earlier pricing discussion and the way we select CMA comps. And find the right price, we attempt to make all other variables equal. Location, size, amenities, condition. The first can't be changed and the second is difficult to change. The last two can be and should be changed anytime a serious seller wants to sell. And that is what we call staging. Adding cost-effective amenities and improving the condition of the home via cleaning, painting, floor treatments, repairs, etc. When a seller does this, one of two things happens. Number one. The house becomes more valuable than the other comparable properties in that price range. Or number two, the house gets moved into a higher price range category where it becomes the lowest priced. In either case, the house now has a better face value than its competition. And that is what a seller wants. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Oddly enough, while almost any seller grasps the necessity and sees the logic of staging a house in a buyer's market, far fewer see the necessity of staging their home. After all, they spent years and thousands of dollars fixing it, improving it, and filling it with all their favorite stuff. They have their own personal tastes and decorate their homes accordingly. And frankly, that's how it should be. It's their home and they should have it as they please. However, the moment a house goes on the market, a seller's personal taste must go out the window. It's now time to have it as buyer as a buyer pleases. Their house must now appeal to the largest possible segment of likely buyers. In a shift with fewer buyers to go around, this becomes imperative. Yeah, I'm going to highlight that. I used to stage homes. I haven't done it in a long time. All right. I don't know what it says. Have you guys stage homes? Just out of curiosity. Let me know. It says, tip, a picture is worth a thousand words. One of the most effective methods to convince a seller to get on the staging bad wagon is also one of the simplest. Go out and take pictures of a cluttered closet and an uncluttered closet, a cluttered kitchen and an uncluttered one, and so on until you have the main areas of the house fairly represented. If you have before and after photos of a house that was staged, that's even better. When it comes down time to sit down with the seller, pull out the photos and have the following conversation. Mr. and Mrs. Seller, let me show you some examples of what I mean by staging. Now, let me ask you a question. All things being equal, which rooms and ultimately which home will catch the buyer's attention? Invariably, sellers choose the pictures of the stage home to which you reply. It's interesting. You have, in every case, selected the homes, the rooms of the home that was properly staged. I assume this means that you can see the wisdom in staging yours as well. This is an approach people responded well to. I encourage you to think of this as a consulting session where you present the best possible information to help the seller make the best possible direction. All right. A buyer's market is definitely a stager's market. Buyers are looking for a great deal, so the home they choose must look like a great deal. Buyers are looking for great value, so the home they'll choose must look like a great value. The home must look like it's worth what the seller is asking. A seller won't get a second chance to make a first impression. Sellers are in competition with more homes than they care to count, and they want to come out on top. You'll have to tour these competitive listings and make note of the look, standard features, and amenities in their price range. What these houses have in common becomes the minimum minimum buyers will expect from your seller, and if the seller truly wants to sell, they'll have to meet almost every expectation and exceed many. Remember that in any market, unless the price absolutely and completely reflects it, buyers want great-looking homes in move-in condition. 
This is the appeal of new homes and can't be ignored by a resale seller. It's always tough news for a seller to hear, and in a shift, this can be downright painful. Cash or the equity to borrow against it is usually in short supply, and yet repair allowances rarely fly in a shifted market. It's hard to ask a seller to spend money on repairs and cosmetics and then ask them to take a beating on the price. But if they're going to sell, they'll have to execute the necessary dress-up. This is about getting the house sold at the maximum price the market will bear. If the seller can't do this, then they probably shouldn't sell. In the end, the cost of staging your home may not increase the price you get, but it may just get the house sold. Damn. That's some savage shit right there. It was pretty bad. I don't know if any of you guys were in real estate uh, 2007, 2008, and 2000, uh, parts of 2009 when it was just cold, like a witch's heart. There were thousands of properties for sale, and the prices just kept dropping. It was crazy. Back to the book. From curb appeal to closing appeal. Staging always follows the 3P-2F formula. Plantings, paint, pictures, fixtures, and furnishings. If you follow this simple strategy and checklist, you're on the right path to successful staging. Hmm, interesting. I haven't heard it done so succinctly. All right. So where to begin? Good staging works like a great novel. It grabs you on page one and doesn't let you go until the last page. Page one for a bestseller is to view from a drive-by. So the battle begins with curb appeal. If the house isn't appealing enough on the outside to coax them out of the car, it doesn't matter how beautiful it is on the inside. Paint and plants are the cornerstones of curb appeal and will do the trick every time. Plus, the cost can be minimal, so no owner should have permission to ignore them. And because this same curbside view is almost always framed at the top of every internet listing page or promotional flyer, it can make a big difference in terms of first impressions. Curb appeal can also be a magnet attracting potential buyers to your home. Staging starts at the street. Look at everything from simple lawn maintenance and landscaping to trimming back trees and shrubs to creating better views of the house on the outside and possibly more light on the inside. Does the house need power washing or a fresh coat of paint? Does the roof need to be repaired? It's amazing how much the outside of a home reflects on the TLC the owner gave the interior. Sometimes you can tell a book by its cover, and whether or not it's fair, that's exactly what buyers do. Poor outside appearance is, for most, the sign of poor maintenance and hidden problems. If the external appearance sends a negative message, then a potential buyer will look more closely at the inside of the home, expecting to find or possibly inventing some problems that will prevent the house from selling. And here he has a chart. It says the buyer experience determines staging priorities. So either have a listing page or promotional flyers, and these lead to seven steps. Starting at the top, number one, curb appeal. Number two, entryway. Number three, kitchen. Number four, master bath and bedroom. Number five, living areas. Number six, other bedrooms. And number seven, the backyard. I'm highlighting all that. From there, the drama generally unfolds along the lines of the buying the buyer experience. They spend time at the front door while their agents opens the lockbox. So lay out the proverbial welcome mat. Again, the 3P-2F formula applies. So think about it as you walk through the house to stage it. Plantings, paint, 
pictures, fixtures, and furnishings will be what a potential buyer sees as well as the house. The entrance area of the foyer says a lot about the house. It's the first impression of the inside to make it count. Next in priority are the areas of the house that are most important to the buyer. The kitchen, the master bedroom, and then the other bedrooms. Staging the house through these areas follows timeless wisdom. First and foremost is to make it inviting. The best stagers not only make the house look great, but also create a vision of what living in the home would be like for the buyer. From candles and play settings on the dining room table to a good book and reading glasses on the nightstand, the goal is to show and sell the experience. Anything that would tend to dispel the vision must go. Personal items like family or wedding pictures can absolutely break the spell and are often the first things packed up. If it isn't necessary or doesn't add to the charm of the home, it needs to be removed and stored for the seller's next home. Ooh, sorry, honey. The new buyers don't like it. Next, clean up and minimize the clutter. That's why job one is boxing up as much as possible. Rearrange and remove furniture to create an impression of spaciousness and a natural flow through the house. I've seen agents pack up a moving truck to haul away excess furnishings. Furnishings. For sellers who have truly decided to sell, adopting this attitude signals a beneficial shift in attitude. The seller can psychologically move on, packing their things, turning over ownership of the house to the future buyer, and in the process, making it much more attractive and sellable. I've heard it described as hotel living, and that's an accurate description. The best hotels invite guests to feel at home. The house you have listed should say the same thing to any prospective buyer. Just remember, you don't have to be the one that does all the staging recommendation recommendations. If you can, then great, but, if you, have, but you have other options. While many agents are students of the staging game and enjoy the physical work of staging a home, many others choose to delegate to their staff or a professional. There is no right or wrong. Since there is a cost to hiring a staging professional, most of the agents we interviewed recommend providing one or two hours of consultation as part of their listing package. Most often paid by the agent at closing should the home sell. Sellers always have the option of retaining the stager for a more extensive consultation or to coordinate the work on their own. The advantage to having a third-party staging professional is that you don't have to deliver the bad news about any obvious clutter, pre- uh, precious knickknacks, or favorite furniture. I hate that shit. I really do. It drives me nuts. Be, I wouldn't want to tell them. You know, you tell them, you know, oh, your precious shit's in the way and it's not going to help sell your home, you know? And they're like, oh, I'm in love with my shit. Man, fuck your shit. We're trying to sell your home for top dollar, Okay. These newspapers from 1983 are not precious. Back to the book. Either way, you must become their partner and advisor in finding ways to accomplish the recommendations. You're their consultant, and it's the market that is telling them what must be done. My fair listing. Staging accentuates the true value of a home. It's notable amenities and features, and when done effectively, can actually create value. The smartest and most experienced sellers know this and welcome the opportunity to enhance the value of the home and odds of selling the home. After pricing, it's the most effective way to get a seller's house shown and sold in a shifted market. Pricing and staging are the issues of the day in a shift. Think of them as a price war and a beauty pageant all rolled into one. I like that analogy. 
If your seller can master both issues, they'll win the battle and be crowned with a contract. You win their respect, their business, and their referrals. The truth that any seller must know is that in the end, pricing gets you in the game. Staging gets you the offer. Tactic number nine, create urgency, overcoming buyer reluctance. If someone is going down the wrong road, he doesn't need motivation to speed him up. He needs education to turn him around. Jim Ron. A buyer's market should be just that, a buyer's market. It's not a fence-sitting, waiting, loitering, delaying, dawdling, postponing, uh, facilitating, vac- or sorry, vacillating, hesitating, wavering, faltering, pausing, foot shift, shuffling market. It's a buyer's market. By its very name, it means buyers should be doing one thing and one thing only, buying. So where are the buyers and why aren't they buying? The great irony of a buyer's market is that even though the opportunity to buy is high, buyer urgency tends to hit an all-time low. The media becomes excited, uh, becomes the excited purveyor of negative news and uninformed advice, and buyers buy it all. Actually, it feels like the only thing they're buying. Their reluctance is ironic since not so long ago, buyers were incredibly excited about buying, and it was a seller's market. Prices were escalating, and it was perhaps one of the most difficult times to buy value, and yet people were buying like there was no tomorrow. Buyers were afraid of losing out by not buying, even though the advantage was all to the seller. Now a shift has occurred, and it's a true buyer's market. And what happens? Fear is still in the driver's seat, but the tables are turned. The fear of paying too much seems to stop most in their tracks, and it mobilizes them. And this shit is so true, dude. 2008, 2009, I don't know how many houses I walked up on. I know I was the only fucker looking at them. The only one. The only one. Everybody's sitting on the sideline watching. Still the best years I've ever had, 2008, 2009. Haven't even come close to having those years since. It was a bloodbath and all that, but uh, he's so right. People just, they they were so scared of buying or not getting a deal or whatever. They went all the way down. So I hope you're getting ready for the next one. Back to the book. When they should have been afraid of paying too much, they weren't. And now that they shouldn't be afraid of paying too much, they are. It's one of the great paradoxical moments of any market and the herd instinct at its most pure. Reluctance in the face of great opportunity becomes an agonizing agonizingly defining characteristic of a shift. The myth that fuels reluctance and a shift buyers can easily lose sight of the primary reasons driving their home purchase, a different neighborhood, a better school district, proximity to work or recreation, a different floor plan, more space and become hyper-focused on price and price alone. With so many homes for sale, too many potential buyers buy into the biggest myth of a shift. They think that they can time the market. God, that's so true. He's so right. You can't time the market. You don't know when the bottom is till it's already coming back up. You can't time the market. Believing in this myth results in a false sense that the buyer has all the time in the world. This fixation on finding the greatest deal ever clouds their thinking and causes many to miss out on the great deals that are possible. There are two types of buyers in regards to timing. There are those who believe they can time the market, and there are those who believe timing will find them. The ones who believe in timing believe that they can come in and out of the market and always time it to make the best possible buying and selling decisions. The ones who think the opposite believe that if you just always stay in the market, then timing will simply find you. History supports the latter. That's so true. you got to be in the market to ever be at the bottom or the top. 
you can't get in and get out, right? It seems obvious, like you need oxygen to breathe, but people are funny. History supports the latter. It says that if you're always in the market, actively paying attention, although you may never sell at the highest peak or buy at the absolute bottom, you can buy right and always do well over time. Logic says that you can't predictably time the market to be able to buy at the absolute bottom and sell at the absolute top. Timers are waiters. Those who wait for prices to come down. If the market is dropped, then prices are down. Waiters will wonder if they are as low as they'll go. The problem is that no one knows this until prices are already headed back up. Sorry, see, I can keep you in ahead of myself. Sorry, Gary. So then the real question a waiter should be asking is if prices are significantly dropped, is it safe to buy now? You believe it is and can explain why. A simple technique to prove to a potential buyer or even a seller that they can't perfectly time the market is to do this easy demonstration. Take out a blank sheet of paper and pen. Now, starting at the top of the paper, Drawing a line going down and at the same time ask the buyer to stop you when they know the market has bottomed out. Guess what? As long as your line keeps going straight down, they won't be able to. Then as you get to the bottom of the page and curve the line so it bottoms out and starts back up. Watch. The moment you start back up, they'll say there. But of course, they missed the bottom. They did. And they will every time you do this presentation. Now, Keep drawing your line while asking them to tell you when the market has peaked. Again, they won't be able to tell you until you've rounded the top and start back down. Then they'll say there, and once again, they're behind the peak. This should be a moment of truth for them. Hopefully, they now realize that the only way they'll ever know the market has bottomed is after it has started back up, and the only way they'll know the market has peaked is after it has started back down. A buyer cannot perfectly time a market. No one can. They can look at indicators that will point out the direction in which a market is going, and they can absolutely mark how far it has fallen or risen. But after that, the only way to know a market has bottomed or topped out is after it has. In other words, perfect timing is luck. The smartest people know this, and the smartest money never goes looking for it. They play in the safe zone. And there's a little figure here saying time in the market. And on the x-axis, it says home prices and not, I guess, vertical access. Sorry. On the vertical axis, says home prices. And on the horizontal axis, it says time. And there's like a sine wave, or I guess I should like a, like a wave, like in an ocean, right? And right through the middle is the safe zone. And at the top and at the bottom are lucky zones. You know the market is bottomed out when it starts back up, and you know the market is peaked when it starts back down. The safe zone is where smart people plan to buy and sell. Anyone who buys at the top of a market is just unlucky, and anyone who buys at the bottom of a market is just lucky. People who buy at a buyer's market are the smart ones. They're buying in the safest zone and living in the area of certainty. They're not unrealistic, and they're not greedy. They know they can't predict the end of the bust, but they can see when a market has fallen considerably. They can't see the end or the speed at which it will climb afterwards, so they focus on what they can count on. People who attempt to predict the bottom in a buyer's market are essentially undecided while wondering. Have we hit bottom yet? The real buyers in a bottom buyer's market aren't trying to predict the floor, but are just trying to buy smart. They aren't looking for a killing because they know that's a matter of luck, not planning. They know they could just as easily miss it has hit it. That's something that, yeah, I'm glad you talked about that, right? You know how many people uh, 
Should have sold it, didn't. You know how many people I heard of? Yeah, I should have sold in 2005. I should have sold in 2006 before the crash. Yeah, should have, would have, could have. Where's your time machine? I'm sure you had opportunities to sell that you ignored, right? And I did it too. I think I explained that one in the last podcast. I had a listing. No, not a listing. Um, I had a flip that I had listed. Sorry. And I was into it for like 55, 60. And I, it was, I know it seems crazy. It was a month before worth 120. But once the crash started, I mean, it took six months, but it, it ended up getting down to less than 20. But I actually had a cash offer for 65000 or 70000 or something like that. It was enough to pay what I had into it, pay my real estate agent, and put a little money in my pocket. And like a greedy fuck, I turned it away. And man, oh, man, regret. Anyway, back to the book. They're looking for a sound decision with a predictable result and therefore ask the question, has the market dropped enough now to make a sensible purchase? More often than not, when they're asking this question, they're already in the safe, do- safe zone and the answer is yes. These are the real buyers in a buyer's market. And what he's talking about here too is we it, is time, right? Over time, since nobody knows when the top is and nobody knows when the bottom is, the people who win are the people who win over time. They don't time the market. They're in the market over time. I think in the um, stock world or whatever, like the index world or mutual funds or whatever they call it, uh, cost uh, cost averaging, right? They're just in the market. So in general, when it's a buyer's market, they try and buy more. And when it's a seller's market, they try and sell more. They're not trying to hit the bottom. They're not trying to hit the top. Sometimes they know they're buying at higher prices. Sometimes they know they're selling at slightly lower prices and it's just cost averaging across there. So, all right, back to the book. Understanding urgency. Understanding buyer urgency, its root cause and how to respond to a lack of it is imperative in a shift. When buyers are more reluctant than ever to make offers and more than willing to walk away from signed contracts, you must be prepared. You must help buyers rediscover a sense of urgency. Only buyers who are able, ready, and willing to buy a home ever actually buy one. Able, ready, and waiting may or may not. As a result, when you first meet a potential buyer, the three fundamental things you want to understand are their ability, readiness, and willingness to buy now. The answers determine if they are really qualified um, as a buyer in a shift. And that's something we need to do in real life, too. I get this random text from uh, somebody from one of my listings on Zillow asking about basement pictures. You know, I get him a basement picture, all that. He wants me to show the property. I don't know who he is. I don't even know his name. I just know his first name, Sam, right? And uh, first thing I text back, wait, we'd love to show you the home. Send over a proof of funds and or, and or a pre-approval letter. Give my email address. We'll see if it happens. So far, it is not. We don't want to waste time with people who aren't qualified. Back to the book. The answers determine if they're really qualified as a buyer and the shift. The first thing you want to know is a buyer's ability to buy it, their financial capacity to purchase a home in a certain price range. Second, you want to know their readiness to buy, the personal reasons that are motivating them to purchase a home. Third, you want to know their willingness to buy, their sense of urgency of when they want or need to buy a home. While all three must exist for someone to be a buyer and a shift, someone's willingness to buy is what gets your attention. You're very interested in their timeline because in a shift, you can only afford to work with buyers whose time frame is now. Knowing a buyer's level of urgency is just another way of knowing their timing and just how willing they are to buy right now. 
And for the record, I don't think he's, um, he's, he's not telling you, um, not to nurture, but in a hot market, you might take some people that'll lukewarm and hope they put in an offer. Right. Um, just because they might, uh, might not want to miss the market and they might feel a sense of urgency. Don't do that in a buyer's market. So he has a, he has a little drawing here. It says buyer urgency. Number one, able available cash or credit worthiness. Number two, personal reasons, willing number three market expectations. Ability always comes first and is tied to factual answers to some basic questions. Do they qualify for an appropriate loan or pay cash? Do they have money for the down payment and closing costs or can they get it? These are showstoppers for you and why a buyer's ability to buy is one of the most is one of the first things you assess. Consequently, if a buyer isn't already pre-qualified to buy, your first job is to put them in the capable hands of a loan officer. In a shift, the availability availability and cost of money can also play a crucial role in a buyer's ability to buy. Tightened lending standards or higher interest rates can absolutely act like a blast of Arctic air on the real estate market. At the beginning of my career, interest rates soared so high that buyers had to ask sellers to buy down interest rates by paying as many as 16 discount points. Can you imagine? Even ready and willing buyers were often rebuffed by sellers in that market. Due to the cost of money, creative financing became the only way to give buyers the ability to buy. Though not the same, after the subprime free lending ways of the early mid-2000s, mortgage lenders created another ability crisis for buyers. In response to the previous loose lending practices, suddenly lenders tightened their lending standards. They quit offering many popular programs, asked for stricter appraisals, required higher credit scores, and even demanded more money down. In both shifts, many buyers were less able to buy, and some could no longer even qualify. And that's the bottom line right there, right? You have a shit ton more inventory and a lot less qualified buyers. That's what happens in a shift. To counter such challenges, you must find workable financing solutions and counterattack or put to rest any false ideas buyers might have about their ability to buy a home. Knowledge and a great loan officer are the keys. By teaming up with a loan officer immediately, you'll not only serve the best interests of the buyer, but also increase the number of people you can help. As soon as you meet someone, help them understand whether they qualify. And if they do, then help them find out if they can buy what they want and need. Readiness is about wants and needs. And a buyer's personal, if a buyer's, it's a buyer's personal reasons for buying a house. These are the things you discover in the course of qualifying someone and doing your buyer consultation, or as we call it, BC. You are determining what they want and must have in a home. Readiness always underpins a buyer's motivation. In fact, it is their motivation. It is their why that leads them to buy. A buyer's personal reasons for moving, buying up, or owning instead of renting are possibly the most powerful determinants of their readiness to buy. Think of it as a spectrum. On one end, you have maybe someday, and on the other, you have right now, today. Personal reasons tend to be the most shift-proof. Real buyers have real wants and needs. Their wants drive them, and their needs compel them. Damn, that's good. It's like wholesale, right? Found their motivation, man must sell when I'm training my uh, wholesale guys and they're like, okay, what are we trying to get on the phone? We're doing our cold calls, right? We're trying to determine motivation and equity. What is motivation mean? Must sell in 30 days or less. Do they have a compelling reason to sell in 30 days or less? 
If not, let's nurture them. Back to the book. When I was in the fourth grade, my parents sold our first home and bought a larger one that was closer to our schools. Three months later, we had to move again because dad took a new job that required we live in a school district where he would be working. Personal ones are powerful in their own right, but needs are the most powerful. They have to happen and thus create absolute buyers. No matter the exact reason, personal needs create buyers no matter the market. Make your buyer pre-qualification and consultation time count. If you don't have a firm grasp of their personal reasons for moving, you've missed out on one of the most powerful sources of reducing reluctance and reinforcing urgency. Once you understand someone's motives, you can help them overcome any doubts or reluctance by reminding them of what they're going to gain by buying now. And this is like in the investor world too, right? It's like find a problem and solve it. This is the same thing, right? Find motivation and push it, right? Make, make it clear why they're doing what they're doing to create that urgency. Willingness is, sim- willing- willingness is simply about action. It's about a buyer mentality and emotionally making a choice about when they'll buy. Mentally, sorry. It's about a buyer mentally and emotionally making a choice about when they'll buy. A buyer can be able and ready, but if they're not willing, then they're just waiting. The truth is that a shift in the market can absolutely impact the buyer's willingness, making them more wary and less eager to buy. It's a fear of making a mistake, overruling the faith they can find a good decision, and it can cause even the most able and ready to become less willing to buy at that moment. The challenge is that once someone has the belief that they should wait, it can be very hard for them to move off of this position. Only willing buyers buy. In a true seller's market, buyers usually fear missing out on accelerating home values. Once a market starts to shift, however, they then fear overpaying. This is troublesome since the fear of overpaying can not only make buyers reluctant to make offers, but can also lead to buyers' remorse. Buyer reluctance leads to fewer contracts and buyer remorse leads to more cancellations. Some days it can truly feel like you're running up a descending escalator, exerting a lot of energy and effort with little progress to show for it. One step forward, two steps back. Willingness not only has to be there at the start of the buying process, but it has to be checked on regu- it has to be checked on regularly to make sure it remains intact. Just as unwilling buyers can become willing, a willing buyer can become unwilling. Ooh. This means you must be on your toes from start to finish, or you could be in for a surprise. To get willing buyers to the closing table and into their new home, you have to check in regularly with them until they move in. Don't back off and don't assume anything. Don't take your willing buyer for granted. Touch base regularly and often. Head off any issues you see coming. Willing buyers buy into the process every step of the way. Everyone has to be continually re-energized and recommitted to get to the closing table. Willingness in a shift is a precious thing. Nurture it, support it, and appreciate it. It's like farming, right? Buyers can easily become paralyzed in a shift. Too much information, too many choices, and too many options can cause confusion and fear. Able and ready buyers become confused about what to do and afraid to make a mistake. Instead of stepping up and being willing to buy, they back off and try and wait the market out. You must help people find confidence and clarity if they are to become willing buyers. I love that. What I was something I always say when I'm training people is, um, hold on here. 
uncertainty kills deals. So you need to explain what you're going to do before you're going to do it. That way, when you show up and do it, you got to walk them through your process, right? All of this, buyer ability, readiness, willingness, add up to one key decision for you. Are they worth investing your time, money, and effort when all those resources are already stretched? And a shift, you want to think of this as a simple yes or no question. Either they are able, ready, and willing, or they aren't. There are no shades of gray. Buyers who are willing have a sense of urgency. Buyers who aren't willing are reluctant. You want to avoid the reluctant and you want to work with the urgent. If you can't help a buyer overcome their reluctance today, it may be better to drop them into your cultivation program and check back with them another day. Your focus must be on the motivator. While it's true, you can't motivate a buyer. You can motive aid as an AID them. There are proven ways you can educate buyers on the market, support their tapping into their personal reasons for moving and helping them overcome their fears in order to rally, then become buyers now. Three ways to energize buyer urgency. Number one, become the local economist of choice. Number two, help them tap into their why. Number three, address buyer reluctance. Number one, be the local economist of choice. I once heard someone laughingly say, some of my best thinking was done by other people. I don't know about the best part of this, but unfortunately, when it comes to buying real estate in a shift, I do believe that most buyers are letting others do too much of their thinking for them. These other people might include family, friends, and the media. On one hand, there's nothing wrong with this. A lot of good information can come from these sources. On the other hand, if these are the only real estate information sources people are using, then they're not getting the entire story. So what's missing? Expert advice. While we read and ask people for information and advice on a variety of subjects, when we need specific information and opinions to make decisions, serious decisions, we seek a professional. From health issues to diagnosing our car's engine woes, we invariably put the most weight on the information and opinion of a trained professional who specializes in a specific area, right? Absolutely. So why not real estate as well? Because everyone, including the media, thinks they're an expert. Buyers need professional advice in a shift more than ever. The challenge is that most don't realize it. They've read the newspapers and magazines, listened to the news, talked to some friends and family members, and and formed an opinion. So far, so good. The problem is that more than likely, they're not gotten the entire story about the market or how to approach it. They believe they're fully informed, but they're not. The media rarely tells the whole story, and most people have limited experience. As a result, Buyers are either half-informed or misinformed, and either is dangerous because they lead to decisions that are poorly formed. So what can you do? Become the professional voice they listen to. Become their economist of choice. Buyers bring their ability and readiness to buy to the market. So what are they getting from others? Some knowledge and some instruction, but mostly economic and market perspective. It's usually these opinions by others that steal away a buyer's willingness, and this is where you can provide a valuable service. By providing useful information and a balanced perspective, you can create more willing buyers. Most people allow their level of willingness to be greatly impacted by the perception others have about the market. Your goal is to go is to round out their economic understanding and market knowledge so they have a complete picture. And off script, not in a book, this is... um. You can't make people decide 
the decision you want them to make. Like if you want a yes, yes, or a no, no, that's like some lie. Like there's some closing technique or whatever. The technique comes in making them decide, right? And what he's saying right here is you educate them and then ask, right? So round out their education, fill in the holes where you think the holes are, offer some value, and then re-ask the question and see if they're become really ready, willing, and able, right? All right, back to the book. Willingness lives in a buyer's market's expectations. Notice I didn't write market realities. Expectations are what drive willingness. They can be fact-based, but tend to be more emotion-based, right? A buyer's sense of the market can become a tailwind that drives them forward or a headwind that stops them cold. Some people look like buyers because they're able and ready to buy. But then you find out that instead of willing to buy, they're waiting. Their perception of the market, wherever they got it from, is that they should wait. If you are to reach your sales goals in a shift, you must develop a strategy from returning your buyers to reason and confidence. You must help them understand that this is a good time to buy. Not because it benefits you, but because it benefits them. You start by influencing their rational thinking with numbers and facts. If you don't do this, you'll never get a chance to address any emotional resistance they may have built up. Find every way possible to overcome the media-driven real estate malaise. Be the one with the facts. Challenge yourself to become the local real estate economist of choice for any potential buyer you meet. Educate them that real estate is a cyclical business. All of this has happened before and it will happen again. What goes up must come down. More important, what goes down has always come back up. Home values will most certainly continue their long-standing trend of appreciation over time. At the very least, inflation will see to that. And equity buildup through mortgage debt paydown still remains a proven path to financial wealth. Forced appreciation, right? Whether it's you or your tenants being paid down, you will have to constantly educate and remind buyers of these economic certainties. The extreme mobility of buyers today has led to some unrealistic expectations that surface in a shift. It is a case of people wanting to bend market reality to reflect their mobile lifestyle. Somehow, people have been led to believe that they can buy and sell everything three to f- buy and sell every three to five years and make a killing on both ends. This economic idea is quite unrealistic. Any successful real estate investor will tell you that real wealth comes from a combination of appreciation plus debt paydown. And for home buyers, this can be further enhanced by any available tax advantages for home ownership. Off the record, too. Also for investors, right? We've got depreciation. Um, we've got a bunch of write-offs, too. You get into commercial real estate. You can, if you own a business, there's equipment you can write off. And then leasing and cars and yada, yada, yada. All right, back to the book. While it's often possible to buy good value or make your money going in, not every home sale results in a windfall. When my parents sold their first home. They lost money. They did it anyway. Why? They wanted another home. As an expert, you can teach buyers about realistic economic expectations. They can't sell high and buy low at the same time. If they sell and then buy during a seller's market, then they'll get more when they sell and then pay more when they buy. When they sell and then buy in a buyer's market, they will get less from the sale, but be able to make it up with greater savings when they buy. It's a great way to explain it. I don't know if that'll overcome the fear, but I like how he does this. In the end, home ownership is best viewed as a long-term investment, just like the stock market or any other sound investment. Yes, over time. Over time. 
Short-term buying will will always put someone at the mercy of the market. The biggest gains are made from holding over longer periods of time, not constantly buying and selling in the short term. Buyers should now know that buying the family home and playing the market are two entirely different things. And I can say I've now been in this market long enough that the people who just bought and hold significantly less properties, like I've done 400 plus deals at this point, don't have that much to show for it. And I know people who have 30 homes that they just bought and never sold and doing way fucking better, right? Time, just just stack it up and pile it up over time. Short-term buying will always put somebody at the mercy of the market. As an agent and local real estate economist, you must communicate the economic and market facts to buyers every chance you get. In your newsletter, on your website or blog, in your marketing pieces and advertising, continuously communicate local market statistics, financial information, and economic facts. Give a historical perspective as well as a current one. Offset a national perspective with a local one. Show buyers the local market information, your area's job growth, population growth, household income increases, and the factual data and area home values. Share current interest rates and financing options. In a buyer's market, the presentation of these facts generally adds up to a powerful argument to buy now. In fact, you will regularly point out how this translates into a buying opportunity that once gone, most likely won't come back until the next cycle. And then it will be at higher prices. It's your job to help buyers understand this. The key here is not is to not appear to be self-serving or simply offering up your own opinions. Cite independent sources and quote experts. Often the same articles that create a gro- uh, gloomy outlook for sellers report real uh, real market statistics that can prove it is an op an opportune time for buyers. If the local real estate section interprets a decline in local prices as creating risk, you can use those same stats to make your case that it is a great time to buy value or trade up. Market expectations are a powerful source of motivation for buyers, and you want to be the one setting these expectations. Hell yeah, be seen as an expert in your marketplace, right? It is unlikely that anyone giving your buyer's advice, whether from a national columnist, a coworker, or even family, knows as much as you about the local market. You are the research-based expert. You are the trusted advisor. Finally, share the success stories of people who recently made the decision to buy and are very happy that they followed through with their purchase. I can't overstate the importance of collecting and sharing these authentic personal stories. By sharing them, it will give a buyer reassurance both that it's okay to buy and that others are in fact doing it. The market isn't dead or dormant and they need to see that. Also realize that it's only natural for buyers to be a little skeptical when you're telling them it's a good time to buy. Show them they're not alone by backing up your sound advice with credible success stories. When the market shifts, you must become more than just a real estate salesperson to a buyer. You must actually become their local market authority, the real estate expert they know and trust so that anything they hear about real estate, they will filter through your advice. Be their, be their economist of choice. Number two, tap into their why. At the end of the day, nothing trumps a buyer's personal motivations and reasons for moving. Compelling personal motives guide people through their lives and sit at the heart of their biggest decisions. Buying a home is no different. There are some pretty big and important reasons attached to buying a home. 
The list can be as long and varied as you can imagine. People move because now you finish the sentence. What did you choose? A new job? A new baby? A new marriage? Retirement? Being closer to family or uncertain places? A divorce? A death? A bright vision of a new life elsewhere? Tapping into someone's list of reasons, getting them in touch with their hearts as well as their heads. Invariably, a factual reason for buying has an emotional string attached to it. Tapping into someone's why is helping them find that string and pulling it so that the heart sits equally with the head. Whatever the reason, I've learned that these internal motivations are among the most powerful of all. So, especially in a shift, you must tap into their reasons for moving. The best way to get to understand the client's motivation is to ask personal questions. Why are you thinking about buying? Really, tell me more. Now what will you, now what will you do? Now what will that do for you? What will that mean for your family? When you have their answer, you must keep it on the tip of your tongue and the top of their mind. It is the central topic that defines all of your conversations. In our book, Your First Home, I tell the story of Steve and Denise. Their story happened in a true buyer's market. They were getting married, so we met to discuss them buying their very first home. As we visited, I drew a line down the middle of a sheet of paper and wrote wants on one side and needs on the other. I then had them share with me all their wants and needs for their first home. High interest rates had made it a buyer's market, but since their pricing range was low for the area where they wanted to live, I was having trouble finding even one house to show them. As luck would have it, the day we were looking at houses, the perfect home for them, right in their chosen area, came on the market. We were the very first buyers to go through it, and we got back to the front door. I almost had a heart attack when I heard Denise say to Steve, and just think, this is the first one we've seen. I asked him to sit on the couch right there in the home. Then I pulled out their wants and needs sheet we had done together, handed it to them and said, this home has everything you want and everything you need, right? They quickly went through and agreed. Then I said, if you leave here without buying this home, it will be gone. The very next buyer who walks in will buy this house and it will be gone forever. Can you live with that? They bought it on the spot and never regretted it. Talking about personal wants and needs is not manipulation. It's simply reminding people what they want to buy and why. I actually consider it my fiduciary duty. I've learned that in life, it's much better to be able to say I'm glad I did rather than I wish I had. I believe it. In fact, I know it's a lesson lived by and has guided me well in advising my customers. And I've had countless notes, letters, calls, conversations, sometimes many years later with buyers who thanked me for reminding them why they were looking for helping them overcome their doubts. Cold feet can lead to regrets. Reluctance can translate into remorse. Believe me, those aren't the memories you'll cherish as a professional. On the other hand, you will cherish the emotional thank yous from clients who are so happy that you helped them overcome their fears and get into the home they love. In the end, your buyers must make the decision. Your job is to help them make the best decision for their family and their circumstances. And often that will require you to tap into their motivation and keep them tapped into it from the first time you meet all the way through closing. I kind of can't wait for this market, right? I'm savagely ready for it. Bring it on. Number three, overcome buyer reluctance. When people have a good reason to buy, they do just that except in a shift. When the market changes, it can throw people off balance. They were going along with their life, and then the market tosses a wrench into the engine, driving their decisions. All of a sudden, they're not sure of themselves and are hesitant to move forward. 
They want and may even need to buy, but yet they hold back. It's frustrating for you and it's frustrating for them. They need someone to intervene and help them overcome their reluctance. They need someone to show them that it's okay and give them permission to buy now. In the end, you are being the highest level of fiduciary when you don't let should-be buyers cave in to their sense that it's better to wait. The reality that people must face is that their expectations may be faulty. Reluctant buyers clearly think that prices will go lower. They will certainly... That will certainly be true for overpriced houses in any market and might even be true for all of the houses in this market. But if prices have already significantly dropped, then the best homes may not go much lower. So unless there's a psychic or a gambler, it's time to buy. Since no one can predict the market and prices have already dropped considerably, waiting any longer no longer really makes any sense. Test this with any buyer. Ask them the question, do you think prices have dropped? I'll answer yes. Next ask, ask, do you think they'll ever go back up again? Again, they'll say yes eventually. Then ask them, so why aren't you then saying that it's actually okay to be out buying again? They're caught and may, may or may not have an answer. That's okay. Go ahead and ask them one last question. Given how you feel, if we found the home today that met all your needs and your most important wants, is there a reason why you wouldn't make an offer to purchase that home today? pause and add one last thing. Sellers are in the same situation you're in. They also know prices will come back up someday, so they don't know, but they don't know when. Genuine sellers want to or need to sell now, but they have fears too. They don't know if prices will go lower either, so if they can sell some sell today, they will. That means they're ready to deal because they're afraid they might uh, afraid today might be the best price they get. This makes most very willing to consider all reasonable offers. Once the market sellers or shows any sign of improvement, opportunities start slipping away. The very moment sellers no longer have to make concessions, they won't. And since there is almost always groupthink at play with all of the waiting buyers, the pent-up demand will show back up and buyers will be faced with mounting competition for the best homes available. And that's exactly what happened. We saw it here in Detroit starting in 2013, Metro Detroit. And we're all of a sudden... Out of nowhere, buyers popped up and then more buyers. And we've had a hot ass market. Um, All that pent up demand, that's exactly what he was talking about. And that's exactly what happened. There are literally people who bought six years ago who have a shit ton of equity. They bought in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011. And here we are in 2017 and they have something like 30 to 50% equity, depending on where they bought their home at in um, Metro Detroit. And that's just because they bought when they wanted to buy. And it's only been five years, and now they have a shit ton of equity. That typically doesn't happen. It's more like 12 to 14 years. So they just got lucky. But what if they said, hey, let's, uh, I bought in 2008. I should have really bought at the bottom of 2009. I wonder how they feel about it. Probably they probably don't give a shit because they're selling now in 2017 for top dollar, making good money, right? Back to the book. This is a great time to use the tale of two markets graph we shared on page 149 to 154 in tactic number seven, price ahead of the market. Homes that are priced well and in good condition are always the first to sell. Aren't these the very homes your buyers would want to purchase? Of course they are. But to do that, they will have to get off the sidelines, stop being speculate, uh, spectators, and get out into the market. This is the time to put your sales skills to work. A buyer's market is a skill-based market, and you are best served to practice your scripts, 
find a coach, engage in regular role play with a partner, and get familiar with the proven best practices for helping your buyers make good decisions. Let's take a look at four classic strategies for helping buyers overcome their reluctance. Just as your consultation is designed to identify and assess a buyer's ability and readiness to buy, careful consultation can also help initiate a buyer's willingness to buy. Four strategies to overcome buyer reluctance. Number one, why wait? The hazards of timing a market. Number two, trade up the opportunity of a down market. Number three, less is more, narrowing the field. Number four, find a best buy, get while the getting's good. Why wait? The hazards of timing the market. Buyers who choose to wait until prices come down more are also gambling that interest rates will hold steady or drop. What is not widely understood is the impact interest rates can have on the real monthly cost of home ownership. Even a 10% drop in a home's prices is immediately nullified by a mere one percentage point increase in interest rates on a 30-year mortgage loan. By the way, this relationship between interest rates and home prices remains essentially the same at any price point. And there's a chart here. I'm not going to go through it all, but it's buy now or wait, home price at 200000 And he just basically compares the difference of a home price at 200000 a 6% interest rate, yada, yada, down on the list, right? So you want your buyers to avoid trying to time the market. Not only does it almost never work, but it certainly can't be done from the sidelines. They have to be in the market to take advantage of the market. Trade up the opportunity of a down market. Many of your buyers will also be selling a home. They're actually feeling the buyer's market from both sides. It's only natural they focus on the impact of, a, of the current market on the sale of their house. The fact they will likely get a lower sales price than in the recent past, rather than the opportunity that selling will give them to buy. If they are planning on trading up, you will need to highlight how saving on a larger home purchase will offset any loss on the sale of their current home. I like that. Yeah, Gary's thought this shit through, hasn't he? The kind of trade-up is often the exact same strategy employed by successful real estate investors. When you buy a larger and better home, you are saving more on the purchase than you may have lost on the sale of your previous home. And the new home is often better positioned for appreciation when the market rebounds. If we take the home in figure 48, the market were to rebound in subsequent years and appreciate by 10%, the larger home would go up in value by $38,000, while the smaller home only grew by $19,000. My wife, Mary, and I systematically traded up our homes, each time focusing on, buy a greater, on buying a greater value than we were leaving behind. Each move over time helped us improve our net worth and accelerate the growth rate of our financial bottom line. It's a proven strategy and one of the best opportunities of a shift. In fact, on average, over 60% of the average individual's net worth is in their home. Make sure your move-up buyers understand this. Less is more, narrowing the field. One of the challenges for buyers in a shift is simply that there are too many choices. When home inventories rise from a few thousand to 10,000 or more, buyers may show some superficial interest but have an extremely difficult time getting serious can begin to feel like they're looking for a needle in a haystack and searching for a diamond in a rough. Research backs the notion that too much of a good thing is both mentally exhausting and ultimately unproductive. Barry Schwartz, psychologist and author of The Paradox Choice of Choice, Why More is Less, 
states that there's a point where all their choices starts to not only be unproductive, but counterproductive, a source of pain, regret, worry about missed opportunities and unrealistic high expectations. This happens all the time, all the time. In fact, a lot of the people you know um, probably have this and, and it could be best summed up as um, in two ways, either fear of loss of opportunity, FOLO, fear of loss of opportunity, or um, fear of better offer, FOBO, right? So, or opportunity, fear of better opportunity or better offer, right? Until I consider all the options, I could be missing out on something. And only once I know all the options or I'm missing out on a better offer, right? Or opportunity. That's what he's talking about here. And people are weird about that shit. Back to the book. One study by researchers at Columbia University and Stanford University empirically proved the downside of excessive choice. They chose jams and jellies for their study. And most of us know why. It's not uncommon to find half an aisle devoted to every flavor under the sun and plenty of artificial ones, too. This team showed that buyers tend to show more interest in a larger assortment, but had much harder time deciding on one to actually purchase. In fact, buyers were 10 times more likely to buy if they chose among six than among 24 flavors. The best retailers have taken this kind of research to the bank. Apple famously mocked up an entire store inside a warehouse and brought in a focus group after focus group until they created the ideal space to highlight their computers and digital lifestyle wares. After just a few years in the retail business, their store sold an average of almost $4,500 per square foot, far outpacing traditional retail powerhouses like Best Buy, Tiffany & Company, Neiman Marcus. Why? If you ever experience their stores, you'll understand that this is a company that mastered the art of presentation and narrowing the field to a few choices. So what does that mean for you? Your job is to help your buyers narrow the field. This is hands-on personal consultation time. If their search criteria are yielding dozens, even hundreds of potential homes, science tells us they're likely to be overwhelmed, shut down, or worse, make a poor first good choice kind of decision. You must either pre-sort their choices or sit with them and patiently help them sort the stack. The goal is a handful of great choices. Take the discards and physically tear them up. Drop them in the trash can. Make the point that those homes are no longer under consideration. The few that remain are the best options, and these are the homes you will tour with your buyers. Each one potentially represents a great match, and now they must choose from a few. Less is more. Do the same kind of sorting and filtering as you look at homes. Have them compare the current home being viewed with the others that they look they have looked at and remove those that are not in the running. There should never be more than five or so homes that are under consideration at any one time. The best agents understand the benefits of this step-by-step -step selection process. They know it helps the customer decide it speeds up the home search and it makes their work with buyers more efficient. They make this their standard practice and in a shift. So must you. Find a best buy. Get while the getting's good. One aspect of the less is more theme that can help you overcome buyer reluctance is a best buy list. This is a list you have compiled of current best buys in the market. I like this. Yeah, I remember a couple of the REO buyers doing this. It's a good uh, from back in the day. From real, that's um, REO's uh, bank foreclosed property that they're selling books. Uh, anyway. 
back to the book, will be based on your consistent tracking of new listings, price reductions, and pre-foreclosure or foreclosure properties. It will be one of the most useful outcomes of your daily previewing of homes. Agents have typically used market knowledge to advise sellers on pricing. When they are working on getting a listing, they research comparables to help the seller understand what the house will likely sell for. What is interesting is that agents rarely do this for buyers. So this becomes a great opportunity to continually pull buyers into a home buying process. Plus, it might actually help you stand out from the competition. A Best Buy list actually comes becomes your unique intellectual property and a powerful magnet for people to work with you. For access to my Best Buy list, updated daily, register now or call now is a provocative attention-getting statement. It is, power, it is a powerful offer response you can use in both your marketing and prospecting. It just might be the most effective indirect offer you make. It is a reason for them to want to work with you. It is a reason for them to get off their reluctance and respond. Another great benefit of the Best Buy list is they can create additional buyer urgency. Hi, Tom. A home just hit my Best Buyer list that could be exactly what you and Sarah are looking for. I'm not sure if it's even still available, but if it is, could we set a time to see as soon as possible? Here's the point. You can't create urgency if there isn't a good reason for it, and you certainly can't fake it. You see this all the time, right? But wait, there's more. Yeah, it has to be real. Buyers can see through false optimism and manipulate selling techniques almost every time. And when they see it, they lose faith in you and the market. You must find real, honest, and compelling ways to help them feel optimistic about the market and comfortable with you as the expert guide. Opportunity time. Markets always favor one sector or another. An up market favors a seller and a down market favors a buyer. They're characterized by the opportunities that define them. A seller's market is a good time to sell and a risky time to buy. In a buyer's market, only serious sellers sell, so all buyers are in a favorable position. The type of market indicates who has the advantage. Reluctance is about unwillingness. Some will come right out and tell you they're waiting. Others won't. But you'll feel the unwillingness anyway. It'll show up lingering, lagging, and delays. It'll show up as lingering, lagging, and delays. People reluctant to buy or sell will allow time to pass and so miss opportunities. Their actions will speak louder than any words possibly could. Either way, they're missing out on the next big sale, and it's your job to see that they don't. At the end of the day, building buyer urgency is about expert knowledge of the market, careful consultation of the their personal wants and needs, Skill at, communicating, communic- skill at communicating the opportunities in the market and assertiveness in challenging their thinking. You are the dedicated professional they hired to help them make good decisions and take the right actions. Earn the right to be that person and have the courage to act on what you know to be true. Most people will thank you. More people refer you to others. And you will execute more sales. Creating urgency is a learned skill. And once learned, it will create new opportunities for you and your buyers. Just remember, the first urgency must be yours. All right, how many pages do we have left? I'm trying to figure out where to stop. Uh, We got more. We keep going. Tactic number 10, expand the options, creative financing. 
Affordability drives the real estate industry. In fact, you might even say that affordability is the real estate industry. Buyers must be able to buy in order for sellers to be able to sell. As simplistic as this sounds, it's equally that important. Affordability is a juice that makes the buyer makes the market go or stop. When it's up, the market goes up. When it's down, the market goes down. If you want to know where the market where the market is headed, just check how affordable a house is. That's your thermometer, and it's extremely accurate. What market you're in or headed towards is easily gauged by one thing, affordability. When I got into the business in 1979 and interest rates topped 18%, about the only way you could buy or sell a home was with lots of creativity. Affordability, driven by high interest rates, was unraveling and making sales tough to come by. Making any sale was a challenge, and we engaged daily in the game of how can I make this deal work? It was a game like in the, it was a game like it was game like in that it rewarded those who thought competitively and strategically, like a mystery to sort out, a riddle to solve, or a code to decipher. Those who solved the riddle could then transact business while everyone else watched from the sidelines. And a shift finding creative ways to help buyers afford to buy and sellers afford to sell is a game you must learn to play and win, or buying and selling literally slows down to a girl. Creative financing. This is a term we use to describe creative ways to resolve affordability challenges. Every buyer is unique and every seller is unique. Every lender is unique. And then along comes the economy and the market itself. Creating the unique environment in which these three parties must do business. All of this means one thing. If the condition warrant creative deals, but you aren't able to put these deals together, then you could be doing you could be done doing deals. Unfortunately, creative financing isn't well understood by most and as a result sometimes gets a bad rap. It's far too valuable a vehicle to abandon just because a few misbehaving individuals have misused this critical real estate consulting tool. In a shifting market, you will often need all the legal, sound, historically proven financing options at your disposal to get some tough transactions closed. As a real estate sales consultant, your buyers and sellers expect you to educate them about the financial options they might have to create the best win-win transaction possible. So when the market shifts, it's time to bring out the creative financial ideas and expand everyone's opportunities. Sometimes a buyer easily falls within the standard guidelines of traditional home financing, and sometimes they don't. When they do, it means they have all the necessary down payment and income qualifications for a loan at the current interest rates and leading lending programs being offered. And if it happens to be a seller's market, then the burden is usually completely on the buyer to figure out a way to buy a house. Houses in an upward shift usually sell without any need for creativity from anyone. A shift can change all this. In a shift downward, not many houses are selling. So if sellers still want to sell, they may have to employ creative financing. If a buyer falls outside the standard guidelines of a down payment and qualification for traditional financing programs, then it's time to bring in the creativity to see if there's some way to help the buyer and seller put a sale together. To make, cre- uh, to make creative financing work, you will do three things. First, you'll have to be clear about what buyers, sellers, and lenders want, specifically what each individually wants and generally what each of them always wants. Second, You'll want to be well-versed on what each of them can do creatively to put a sale together. Each one has time-proven list of options they can consider to make a sale work. 
And last, you'll need to be creative in making all of this work at one time. Creative financing is a combination of knowledge and skill. To find success, you must understand each party's motives. Learn the choices available to each, and then you must creatively suggest solutions. The three areas of creative financing. Think of creative financing as getting outside the box to create more choices when more choices are unnecessary. At its most basic level, creative financing is looking at more options than are used in than are used in typical financing and tra- financing and transactions. Um, it's actually a checklist to consider with additional things to mull over before declaring a deal debt. It's really a combination of thinking outside the box and inside the deal. In any creative transaction, there are essentially three players who can participate. The seller owns the home, the buyer wants to buy it, and the lender approves the necessary loan on the transaction. To give everyone a fighting chance to do business, you can discuss with each player the creative financing solutions that any one of them can bring to the table to get the deal done. Three areas of creative financing. Number one, creative things sellers can do to sell their house. Seller contributions is number one. Number two, seller-funded permanent buy-down. Number three, seller-funded temporary buy-down. Number four, owner financing. Number five, contract for deed or land contract. Number six, seller second. So that would be like a second mortgage or a holdback mortgage, a carryover mortgage. Um, number seven, lease option and lease purchase. Number eight, wraparound and assume, assumable mortgage. Number two, creative things buyers can do to purchase a home. Number one, gift funding. Number two, selling and refinancing existing assets. Number three, non-occupant co-borrowers. Number four, using a 401k. Number five, temporary IRA transfer. Number six, Pledged asset mortgage, number seven, equity transfer and bridge loan, number eight, employer-assisted mortgage. Three, creative things lenders can do to finance a transaction. Number one, lender-funded buy-down. Number two, Fannie Mae's My Community Mortgage. Number three, running scenarios with automated underwriting systems. Number four, adjusting amortization period to lower payment. Number five, adjusting interest rates to cover closing costs. Number six, state, province, and local grant and or bond program. Number seven, mortgage credit certificate. Number eight, private lending. The basic financial terms of any real estate transaction are the offer amount, down payment, loan amount, interest rate, and length or term of the mortgage loan. Since the very first real estate transaction ever created uh Creative individuals have been tinkering with these variables to get houses sold and closed. The 24 options presented in figure 50 may be the most common, but they barely scratch the surface of what's possible. A seller buy-down could be combined with a buyer's gift fund along with a bond program offered through the lender to sell a house. A buyer using a non-occupant co-borrower could negotiate a seller's second addition to an owner finance primary loan or conventional loan. At the end of the day, you can put together just about any combination so long as the terms are legal, all three parties agree, and everything is properly disclosed. The greater your awareness of the the viable options, the more creative solutions you can offer to make the transaction work. Creative financing begins with simply knowing where the bottom line sits for the seller, buyer, or lender. Yeah, because if you can't solve all their problems, you're not going to get it done, right? 
You must first know what everyone wants before you can suggest creative ways to get there. What is each party most interested in accomplishing in any given transaction? Sellers are most often driven by price. What will I net on this sale? Buyers are more likely to be interested in terms. How much will I have to put down, pay per month, and pay over the life of the loan? And lenders always keep their eye on managing risk and achieving returns. How can I structure a loan that both minimizes the chances of default and maximizes our interest rate? With this general insight, plus a clear understanding of each party's specific needs, you're ready to explore the creative financing solutions that might work and meet the needs of everyone involved in a particular transaction. Number one, create things sellers can do, creative, uh, creative things sellers can do to sell their house. Motivated sellers have several cards to play if they truly want to sell their house in a slow market. David Reed, a longtime mortgage professional and author, teaches that sellers need to remember that buyers have to overcome three essential barriers to buy a house. They have to have the income, the assets, and the credit to qualify for a mortgage in a lending environment with increased standards and scrutiny. Sellers can insist with all three. In other words, sellers have the ability to help buyers who don't have the income to qualify for a loan amount who don't have enough down payment funds available or who may have less than perfect credit. And the dollar amount sellers would be willing to reduce their sales price by might actually translate to a greater buyer incentive when offered as a creative financing solution. It's always worth considering. The conversation alone will validate you in the eyes of any seller. Area one, creative things sellers can do to sell their homes. Wait, I'm not, I'm not reading this again. We already read it. Probably the most common solution comes in the form of seller contributions, sometimes called seller concessions. These can include paying for a buyer's closing costs or even conveying personal items in the transaction from leaving the media room fully equipped to passing along kitchen appliances. When we were researching the millionaire real estate investor, we heard a story about a seller who couldn't get a refurbished starter home sold until he included his old BMW. A clever ad with the tagline, shelter and transportation for one low price got him an offer he was after. More commonly, your seller will either advertise they are willing to pay some or all the closing costs or agree to a buyer's request for in negotiations. One may attract an offer and the others might make an offer turn into a sale. Either way works. Most lenders limit seller closing cost contributions to between three and 9% of the sales price, depending on how much the buyer pays as a down payment. However, just be aware that if a seller pays more than 6%, it would likely affect the appraisal. Also, as a side note, remember that anytime a buyer adds a, any dollars to the sales price, which increases the mortgage amount, they're increasing their monthly payment. And there's a chart showing how that math works. Saving enough money to buy a home is a challenge for most home buyers, so seller contributions to closing costs can make a home purchase more achievable. Even if, a buy, even if the buyer can afford to pay the whole amount, the savings allows them to make immediate improvements to the home instead of waiting and saving for them. The price for that convenience in this example is $30 a month. This could be a source of money a buyer never thought of and might consider. Next on the list is the seller buy-down. This is where the seller buys down the interest rate on the mortgage buyer's mortgage loan for the life of the loan, a permanent buy-down, or for the first few years, a temporary buy-down. When interest rates are low, this tactic is too often overlooked. Nevertheless, buy-downs can, can be effective tools for closing the deal. 
For example, a seller could pay about $5,000 to permanently buy down a 30-year note on a $250,000 loan from 6% to 5.5%. That's two points, 2% of the loan amount. Well, that only translates into about $70 in savings on a monthly principal and interest. It could save a buyer much more in interest paid over the life of the loan. In this example, a $5,000 buy-down translates into almost $30,000 in interest saving over a 30-year life of the loan. Marketing the, the buy-down can be tricky. Do you market it as an interest rate buy-down or in total savings? It's your call. A word of caution, be very careful whenever marketing something like this. Work with a loan officer to verify your numbers based on the current rates and an expected offer price and down payment. And always follow all the disclosure laws that apply to such advertising. You may find this doesn't have to be a way to advertise or market the property as much as an idea you suggest and work through with buyers and their agents should they show interest in your seller's house. If the sellers own their home free and clear, they have another excellent option, owner financing. Sellers with no mortgage can consider turning their equity into a monthly check using the house as collateral. This was very common when I got started in real estate. At the time, any sales professional worth their salt could construct a solid owner finance contract. The key is to make sure the sellers exercise their proper due diligence. For various reasons, many potential buyers suffer from less than perfect credit. The seller simply has to determine the facts on why their credit suffered. Others may have unverified income from personal business that isn't established long enough to count towards a conventional loan. Lenders usually require two or three track record. These buyers will see owner financing as a big incentive to buy, but they might even consider it a reason to pay a higher price. The sellers can benefit as well. Not only can they sell their house and literally move on with their lives, but they can also earn a solid return on their loan. Most private loans carry higher interest rates to offset the risk, and if the buyer refinances the loan in order to pay off, the, and if the seller thinks they will—sorry, I skipped a line—and if the seller thinks they will need the money in a few years, they can require that the buyer refinance the loan in order to pay off a seller's note. And actually, as a change, that may not be true. Um, you should go uh, on the podcast or Alan Daniels. I think it's the first one where he talks about it, and also at like sixty. Ooh, no, episode 53 or 54, where he came back on a second time. He was talking about the Consumer Protection Financial Board and how you have to be very there. There's you have to be very careful how you structure balloon, if at all. And he kind of goes through that. Um, so that's not necessarily as true as it used to be. Back to the book, a good deal structured around a two, three, or five-year balloon private mortgage will get the buyers in. Oh, I should say that's just for um, if you're going to occupy the residence, too. I'm sorry. I didn't want to confuse anybody. Earn the seller extra income and facilitate the buyer eventually qualifying for a conventional loan when the note comes due. Contract for deed, or as we say in the Midwest, land contract works just like owner financing with extremely important exception. Ownership doesn't change hands until the entire sales price is paid in full. With a conventional home purchase or an owner financing deal, <clears throat> title gets conveyed up front. Contract for deed or land contract is more like an automobile loan where the car belongs to the buyer only after all payments have been made. It was a contract for deed or land contract that helped put my sisters and me through Baylor University. My father had bought a second house with some land across the road from my aunt and grandmother in Lake Conroe outside Houston, Texas. 
When it came time to sell, Dad sold on a, on a contract for deed with very little down and monthly payments. A few years later, the buyer defaulted and abandoned the property. Real estate prices had gone up quite a bit in that period of time, so my father was actually okay with getting it back. So he raised the price considerably and soon sold it again using contract for deed. Well, a few years later, this buyer also defaulted and left the property. Real estate prices had continued to skyrocket, so my dad wasn't unhappy about having to take the property back. Once again, he raised the price significantly and sold it on another contract for deed. And believe believe it or not, the buyer soon defaulted as well. At this point, my father told me he was feeling really bad for this buyer, so they simply worked the payments out so they can keep the property and debt could be paid. Another avenue of creative financing is the seller second. This is a shorthand for secondary or subordinate loan made by the seller. This primary loan, conventional or private, uh, sits first in line for repayment in, line, in the event of default, which increases the risk. So, like any second loan, the interest rates are usually higher to compensate for the increased risk. These are often called seller carrybacks. Um, Seller seconds are invaluable. Properly disclosed seller seconds, and properly by meaning the lender knows and everybody knows, can help buyers avoid private mortgage interest, PMI. Seller seconds can also benefit the buyer by allowing for a smaller down payment, lower monthly payments, or even avoiding higher Interest rates on a jumbo loan. Let's take a second look at how seller seconds can help a buyer avoid PMI and lower their monthly rates. And here is just an example of a chart. It's 5% down, no seller second. 5% down, 15% seller second. And the difference between the two and the difference in the payments, right? Um, today, conforming loans max out at 417000 and any loan amount above that justify, qualifies as a jumbo loan. For buyers, the difference is significant. Since jumbo loans are considered riskier by lenders and can therefore carry a higher interest rate, often a full percentage point or more, and that can make for a much higher monthly payment. For example, a conventional 30-year loan on $417,000 might carry 6.5% interest rate, while a 30-year loan for $418,000 might carry a 7.5% interest rate. The buyer is only financing an additional $1,000, but their monthly payment could soar from $2,635 to $2,922. That's an extra $287 a month. So for a seller's house that falls into the just barely jumbo arena, their offer to carry back a second loan could save the buyer hundreds of dollars each month and even $1,000 over life alone and might just be the difference to get the property sold. Some other methods of creative financing include lease options and lease purchases, which are not as common as they once were. The difference between a lease option and a lease purchase is simple. In a lease option, a buyer would rent the home for a certain period of time, after which the buyer would have the exclusive option to purchase the home at the then agreed upon price. A lease purchase simply stipulates the buyer will buy the home at the end of the term for an agreed upon price. When potential buyers cannot qualify any other way, these become creative ways to get the seller out from underneath the house payment and potentially sell the house if they use the lease option and definitely sell the house to use the lease purchase. And again, new um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, all that, our great friend, Sarcasm Elizabeth Warren and all these people that think this is a great idea um, have changed a lot of that. So definitely go back and check those rules out. They're still possible to do. They're just more guidelines and you, you want to be more careful. 
Things to look out for. Document how the seller set the rent or even pay f- uh, for a formal rent survey. Make sure all parties are represented by their own attorney. And finally, if prices fall during the term of the agreement, you may run into trouble getting an appraisal, which means a larger down payment from the buyer. Finally, wraparound mortgages, wraps, and assumable mortgages sit at the bottom of the list for a good reason, the due-on-sale clause. While both are highly effective, the advent of the due-on-sale clause, meaning the amount on the mortgage is due to the lender upon the sale of the property and or transfer of the deed and or any interest in the property a lot of times, um, and most mortgages has made them exceedingly rare. A wrap is a situation where the owner offers you a new mortgage while keeping and paying down their original loan. The new loan wraps the original. Some lenders will allow a wrap if it's disclosed. Uh, Jay Papasan successfully used a fully disclosed wrap to purchase, subdivide, and later sell some land, all within about 14 months. The mortgage banker was involved from start to finish and agreed, and agreed to it due to the short-term nature of the transaction. Don't rule wraps out without investigating the circumstances. Every now and then a wrap will be the solution that saves the sale. In an assumable mortgage, I don't know how many they are, the buyer takes full responsibility for the seller's mortgage when allowed by the seller's mortgage lender. Some government loans like FHA and V are assumable, but again, these are very rare and normally a new buyer must qualify and everything must be disclosed. High mortgage interest rates can make assuming loans more attractive, so the buyer can enjoy the favorable rates of the pre-existing loan, but there's a little motive, there's little motivation for the lender to agree since the new buyers will pay less interest and enjoy a shorter loan term. The main reason some of these loans were designed to be assumable, particularly the VA, was to protect sellers who may no longer be able to afford their home. In this case, the logic was it was better to let the loan be assumed than force a veteran into foreclosure. Sellers should know that their options, uh, what their options are. So once you visited with the seller and say the property, you can uh, legally analyze the potential for creative financing. Laws and regulations vary from state to state and from province to province. So you'd be wise running potential strategy by your office manager or broker before you commit pen to paper. And let's be realistic here about this too. Depending on the office you're in, your broker might be a shithead. In fact, statistically, your broker's a shithead. Go see a lawyer. Go see someone who really knows the law, right? Goes, like, go find the Alan Daniels of Metro Detroit who just knows that shit in and out, who's just embedded in the boards, who, who helps write the laws. Get their opinion, right? And then see what can be done. Now, you may have to listen to your broker because if you do the deal, he might kick you out or something like that. But I'm just pointing out he's being very generous here with broker and all that. And I found that most of them are just fucking dipshits. Back to the book. In particular, lease options, lease purchases, and contracts for deed land contracts are subject to many local laws and restrictions, mostly enacted to protect buyers from unscrupulous sellers. Anytime there is an agreement in play other than the offer contract, and this includes owner financing, Make sure all parties are represented by their own attorney for everyone's protection and that you always disclose and disclaim. Number two, creative things buyers can do to purchase a home. There are probably a few things worse than being a buyer who's unable to buy in a buyer's market. The market shifts and home ownership suddenly looks like the possibility for a buyer until they discover they are mortgage, there are mortgage challenges to overcome. 
When buyers have difficulty qualifying for a mortgage loan, it's usually because of CIA. I'm referring to credit, income, and assets, not the other CIA. In a shift, lenders tend to tighten their lending standards, so knowing proven workarounds for all three can be essential for some buyers. Good credit is necessary for a loan. As obvious as this sounds, it always amazes me how many buyers don't grasp this. A damaged credit score can be raised, but it takes time to repair, often with the help of some sage advice from a great lender or a certified credit counselor. If your buyers have credit issues that can't be quickly remedied, then you're probably back to appealing to the seller for owner financing, a contract for deed, a lease option, or a lease purchase. Income is the second category. If your buyers have an income challenge, they don't earn enough qualifying income or the lender won't recognize it, you might suggest the buyer find a non-occupant co-borrower or, again, appeal to the seller for help. Finally, the most common obstacle for buyers is coming up with the down payment and closing costs. Some potential home buyers simply haven't saved enough or have saved nothing at all. If the seller isn't willing to make a contribution towards the buyer's cost, you'll have to find your buyer another viable source of funds. Most of the creative things buyers can do to create up uh, most of the creative things buyers can do relate to coming up with the assets for down payment. And then here we go. It's area two. We're talking about gift of funds, selling, refinancing. We already talked about this before. The first place a buyer can look for assistance with purchasing a home is family. A close family member is traditionally the most common option for obtaining down payment and closing cost funds. Gift letters and documentation must be in place, but all in all, it's a straightforward answer to finding purchase funds. In my experience, Parents and grandparents with the financial capability to help are often proud to play a part in a child or grandparent's transition into home ownership. Along with family, there are only a handful of approved sources for financial gifts to buy real estate. Other sources for down payment funds or closing funds are available, including accredited nonprofit agencies, government grants, churches, domestic partners, and trade unions. Uh, Many forward-thinking engaged couples are taking advantage of creative ideas like requesting that down payment funds be gifted in lieu of traditional registry registry items. When enough wedding guests offer funds instead of place settings, it can add up to a substantial portion, if not all, of the down payment. Make sure your buyers know about options like this because it may apply to them. Another creative avenue available to buyers is selling or refinancing another asset. It's not uncommon for buyers to sell some of their stuff, boats, cars, stock options, stamp collections, to raise money to buy a home. Remember, when a buyer is truly motivated, they may surprise you with their their own creative solutions. All you have to do is prompt them a little and get their creative juices flowing. Remember that the lender will want to verify the source of the money used for the down payment. You'll need to have receipts and third-party appraisals to confirm that the painting your buyer sold was really worth $3,500. Explain to the buyer that they must keep a paper trail and understand the lender will likely do an independent verification as well. Buyers can also find money and challenge their loan worthiness by paying off or refinancing existing debt. I actually refinanced my beige four-door Honda Accord when I purchased my first home. The car had held its value and I paid enough of it off so there was room to put a new loan on it and pull some money out. So I did just that and used the money for my own down payment and closing costs. Even with the new car payment on my credit statement, I qualified for the mortgage. There are numerous other solutions to help buyers from non-occupant co-borrowing where mom and dad buy the house with son or daughter to 
borrowing against a 401k or IRA funds. With pledged asset mortgages, buyers can pledge assets such as CDs, stocks, or bonds that they prefer not to liquidate or borrow against. Equity transfers and bridge loans are options where the assets the buyer can't or is unwilling to sell are in the form of real property. Most lenders can help you navigate that transaction, which can be common for buyers who are trading up or down. And finally, some corporations have established employee down payment assistance programs. If your buyer works for a large corporation, get them to inquire with the human resource department to check availability. Um, Your awareness of these options and how to take advantage of them is the key to converting more buyers into homeowners in a shifting market. These creative financing ideas expand the number of buyers who can buy and therefore sellers who can sell. Everyone wins. Uh, One note to buyers, whether it's a temporary IRA transfer or the sale of an asset, many of the creative things buyers can do may have tax ramifications. Since you are not a financial advisor or a certified public accountant, leave any true decision-making advice to qualified professionals. Recommend professionals you trust and require your buyers seek their own counsel. It protects you, your buyers, and innocent sellers from unexpected or unpleasant outcomes. And I think, yeah, we'll go a little bit more. Number three, creative things lenders can do to finance a transaction. The final player in a creative home purchase transaction is the lender. A knowledgeable loan officer could possibly help your buyer tap into a conventional loan program that may have been overlooked or forgotten in recent years. A great loan officer should also be able to offer guidance and insight into the financing solutions being considered by your buyers and sellers, as well as specialized assistance if necessary. At the top of the list is the lender-funded buy-down. The goal here is to help a buyer stretch their debt ratios in order to qualify for a mortgage, temporarily offsetting a current drop in income, or provide permanent relief because income isn't anticipated to be higher in the future. Let's say you have a buyer who wants to buy now, but who won't be fully vested in his pay structure for another two years. The house he wants to buy costs $200,000. He has just enough for a 10% down payment, $20,000. The interest rate on a 30-year note is 6.5%, which translates into $1,137 monthly dollars in monthly payment on a $180,000 financed. Unfortunately, your buyer doesn't yet make enough money to qualify for the monthly payment, and neither he nor the seller has the ability to pay for an interest rate buy-down to lower the payments. In this instance, you might ask the lender to pay for a two-to-one buy-down, lowering the interest rate for the first two years and therefore lowering the monthly payments enough for your buyer to qualify. You may be wondering why any lender would agree to pay for the buy-down. The truth is the lender doesn't actually pay for it. The buyer does. Here's how it works. The 2-1 buy-down would normally lower the base interest rate two percentage points in the first two years and one percentage point in the first year and one percentage point in the second. In this example, a 2-1 buy-down would translate to a 4.5% rate in year one and a 5.5% rate in year two and a 6.5% rate for the duration of the mortgage. The lender calculates how much interest income would be lost from the original rate, 6.5% in the first two years at 45 and then 55 and then 
to fund the buy down, the lender adjusts those rates back up a tiny bit. The first step is to figure the total annual payments for each interest rate. And um, 12 months at 6.5%, it's $13,644. 12 months at 5.5%, it's $12,264. And a monthly payment at 4.5% for 12 months, it's $10,944. Next, the lender calculates how much would be lost in the first two years. Two years at 6.5% is $27,288. One year at 4.5% and one year at 5.5% equals $2,328. The difference is the amount of interest lost or $4,080 in this example. That translates to 2.3 discount points. That's 4,080 divided by 180,000 equals 0.023 or the amount the lender will raise rates to recover the lost income. Hang with me, we're almost there. Generally speaking, each discount point paid adjusts the mortgage interest rate down 0.25%. For example, the lender will adjust the rates by two discount points, or 0.5%, to recover the lost interest income. This allows your buyer to borrow 180000 at 5% the first year, 6% the second, and 7% for the remainder. By the way, the difference in a monthly payment at 6.5% and 7% is only about $60 per month. While your buyer may pay slightly more for the bulk of the loan term, the lower payment in year one and year two will enable them to actually qualify for the loan. Next on the list is Fannie Mae's My Community Mortgage, which serves as a placeholder for classic reliable loan programs such as FHA and VA that are sometimes overlooked or underused. My Community Mortgage is a lesser-known program designed to help buyers overcome credit, income, and asset challenges. It is available to any non-investor who makes less than media income for a specific area as defined by the Department of HUD and Urban Development. Um, Housing, sorry, Department of Housing and Urban Development, called HUD. All these government-funded or bonded programs are bullshit. No, I'm just kidding. And uh, they are bullshit. And specifically designed to help targeted buyers in homeownership. Now may the time to maybe the time to rediscover them, but use them right. Use all the tools you have at your disposal. Bullshit or not, provide they're legal. A great mortgage professional can help you in other ways too. They can submit and resubmit loan applications through automated underwriting programs, tweaking the criteria until they figure out just what a buyer needs to do in order to qualify for a loan. For example, they might run on an application without a car payment in order to see if a loan might be approved contingent on the car being paid off. A little extra effort from the mortgage professional assisting in the transaction can go a long way toward getting it done. Lenders can also adjust amortization periods to lower payments. Buyers and their agents tend to believe 15 and 30-year loans are all that are available, but they are merely the most prevalent. Lenders will typically amortize the loan in increments of five years starting at 10 and going all the way to 50 years in some cases. The longer the term of the mortgage, the lower the monthly payment will be. Just make sure buyers are aware that a longer term also means it will take longer to build equity through debt pay down to the moment they can afford it. You should point out that if they go this route, they might consider making an extra payment or more each year to greatly reduce the amount of money and time it takes to pay off their mortgage. Honestly, this is a great strategy no matter which way a buyer finances their home and should be a regular part of your discussions with buyers. Lenders will also adjust interest rates to cover up closing costs. 
This can be highly effective when monthly payments aren't the issue, but bringing cash to the table is. Good mortgage lenders will typically be familiar with local and regional grants available to first-time low-income buyers as well as programs related to specific professions. If you are working with a public servant, whether a teacher, a tax assessor, a police officer, a firefighter, ask your lender if there's a special program for buyers in this category. Interestingly, lenders can factor in the tax savings associated with home ownership and count it as qualifying income with the mortgage credit certificate. Only first-time home buyers can qualify, and they must make less than median income. Nevertheless, your buyers who make almost enough to qualify for a home they want, this whole, this program can make the difference. When all else fails, your lender may be able to recommend reputable private lenders who might finance the home purchases. Um, not anymore, probably. Not if you're going to live in it because the Consumer Financial Protection Board, right? Because Elizabeth Warren doesn't think you should be able to make loans to private people. There you go. These work like owner financing and usually involve short-term balloon financing. If your buyers go this route, make sure they have an attorney and, most important, a solid plan for refinancing when the note comes due. Making timely payments on a mortgage is a great way for buyers to heal a damaged credit score and prepare them for a conventional loan. The lending landscape is inherently diverse and always subject to change. It seems new lending programs pop up each year and lending standards are in a constant flux. It is therefore imperative that you seek out and partner with the best mortgage professionals in your area. You're looking for knowledge, experience, creativity, and integrity. They must be flexible and responsive to you both and your clients your financing team. So how does a real estate agent add massive creative financing to their ever-growing list of important tasks to do? They don't. You only need to have a clear understanding of the market, the players, and their options. With this knowledge, you can effectively expand the choices for your buyers and sellers and leave the details to your financing specialist. Meet separately with your top two loan officers every week. These meetings should be on your calendar for the entire year. The goal of these brief meetings is to brainstorm the issues you and the market are facing. Ask them to put all their financing options on the table that might work in the market for each of your buyers and sellers. With that list in hand, you can then set the expectation that these same lenders will take ownership of these forms, the timelines, and process the need to put these ideas into action on each loan they get. You should also include your accountant, attorney, and title officer into your financing team to handle the, the work that falls outside the job description of loan officer, such as offering tax advice or drafting legal or closing documents. Finally, and most importantly, involve your manager. Good ethics and good business sense demand it. Your company is implicitly involved in all your transactions. I've seen real estate agents lose their licenses, face lawsuits, and charges of loan fraud with a little caution could when a little caution could have prevented it all. Likewise, I've seen great offices with wonderful risk management practices in place face lawsuits, increase errors and omissions in insurance and premiums, and even the loss of their errors and omission protection altogether. Just because a, do a document is drawn up by an attorney doesn't necessarily mean it's illegal. I've been privileged to work with amazing leadership in my real estate businesses. They work tirelessly with their agents to find proven legal and win-win solutions for their customers. It may slow down the process to double and triple check things, but in the end, it is a professional way to do business. Disclose and disclaim. The last words of every creative financing transaction are disclose and disclaim. Your mantra must always be disclose, 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 disclaim, disclaim, disclaim. 
If you can't disclose it to everyone and put it on the closing document, it probably isn't legal. And if you can't disclaim your liability from it, that usually means someone is intending to hold you liable. So disclose what you're doing and disclaim responsibility for it. Always add disclosure and disclaimer where all parties acknowledge what they're doing and agree not to hold you responsible, liable for what they have decided and done. This puts everyone on notice for what they've done and that you're not in the lawsuit loop on it. Disclosing and disclaiming it also gives your office leadership a chance to check your math and watch your back. Check with them early in the process and often to ensure the financing solutions you offer won't put yourself or any of your business partners at risk. It's the right thing to do. To succeed at your highest level on a shift, you'll need to become proficient at creative financing. Make sure you have a clear understanding of the current options available to your buyers and sellers and meet with your finance team weekly to work out options and solutions for them. It takes commitment, effort, and a weekly slot on your calendar. Don't let your calendar convict you on this one. Your financial success and the financial future of your buyers and sellers may depend on it. Make a date with financing. Keep it all year, every year. It's one more way you'll take luck out of play and make the most of your current career. And that, my friends, is where we're going to stop this week. We're on page 221, so we did some damage, and we're going to start next week on page 223. So let's go do our review, which will be a little shorter. I know quite a bit about um, financing, and and obviously I think your notes should be different, right? So whatever your notes are, you probably didn't highlight the same things I highlighted, right? And that's okay. This is just my review. You don't have to do it this way. All right, so we're going to start back on the review. Page 157. Price and condition are irrevocably intertwined. The example I gave before is still a great example. When you're meeting with a seller, they're naturally going to gravitate towards the highest sales in the neighborhood. And that's an opportunity for you to differentiate. Well, absolutely, yes, Mr. Mr. Seller, but it has 500 additional square feet and it has updated kitchen, updated bathroom, and your shit's still from 1965 before they put a man on the moon, right? So despite Marxism and everything they tell you, price and condition go hand in hand, right? Whenever we say price is a number, one issue is getting a home sold, What we're really saying is a price must match the condition. Price right means price right for what you get, and overpriced means overpriced for what you get. It's that simple. Don't buy any bullshit on it. All right. Their house must now appeal to the largest possible segment of buyers. And a shift with fewer buyers to go around, this becomes imperative. And this is an example he's talking about beauties in the eye of the buyer. Right, like maybe you think it's a great idea to have a wall full of mirrors, right, in your sex swing, hanging off the the ceiling, your reinforced ceiling, right, and you paint the room fuchsia, and you have polka dot carpets, right. You might think that shit is hot. Other buyers might. You're appealing to a very narrow segment of the market, right. What they're saying right here is make sure you get your sellers to understand they need to appeal to the largest segment of the market, right. All right. In the end, the cost of staging your home may not increase the price you get, but it may just get the house sold, right? So this is in reference to a buyer's market when shit's real tough, it's real tight, and you're trying to get the most you can for the home. Some things you may do, in this case, staging may not actually increase the value of the home, but 
or the sales price, but it might actually get it sold. Um, staging always follows the 3P-2F formula. Plantings, paint, pictures, fixtures, and furnishings. If you follow this simple strategy and checklist, you're on the right path to successful staging. And then it's got the buyer experience determines staging priorities. So number one, curb appeal. Number two, the entryway or the foyer. Number three, the kitchen. Number four, the master bath and bed. Number five, the living areas. Number six, other bedrooms. Number seven, the backyard. Staging accentuates the value of a home, its notable amenities and its features. And when done effectively, can actually create value, right? So price and the appearance of value, as he describes, think of them as a price war and a beauty pageant all rolled into one. And he can, I don't know if you remember from earlier, less is more, right? So pick up all your tacky knickknack shit. You know, nobody cares about your your beanie baby collection either. Nobody thinks it's cute. So pull all that stuff as well. Less is more, or as he describes it, kind of like living in a hotel. You know, that's the kind of shit you want to leave out. So with so many homes for sale, too many potential buyers buy into the biggest myth of a shift. They think they can time the market. Bullshit. Can't time the market. The ones who think the opposite believe that if you just always stay in the market, then the timing will simply find you. By definition, you can't time the market because you're not in the market. So by the time you're in the market, the correction has happened. It's impossible, right? So, and you work within the safe zones. That's what he's talking about here. They aren't looking for a killing because they know it's a matter of luck, not planning. They know they could just as easily miss it as hit it. And this is talking about timing the market, right? Um, whether you're buying or you're selling, it's very difficult. It's practically, in fact, it's some, if you hit the top or the bottom, you're lucky. And that most people who are smart operate in the safe zone, which is an area in between those two things. And then realize if they happen to hit one, shit, they were just lucky. As a result, when you meet, you, when you first meet a potential buyer, the three fundamental things you want to understand are their ability, readiness, and willingness to buy now. Do they have money? Are they pre-approved? How ready are they? Must and willingness to buy now. Knowing a buyer's level of urgency is just another way of knowing their timing and just how willing they are to buy now. Buyer urgency, number one, able, available cash or credit worthiness. Number two, personal reasons. Uh, have to move, must move, relocation, blah, blah, you know, uh, divorce. Three, willing, market expectations. In both shifts, many buyers were less able to buy and some could no longer even qualify. Because in a shift, lending requirements get tighter too. So not only are there there less buyers and, and everybody's sitting and waiting, now now a lot of your buyers just become un, unqualified for some period of time, right? Personal reasons tend to be the most shift-proof. Real buyers have real wants and needs. Their wants drive them and their needs compel them. Kind of just what I just said, right? Once you understand 
someone's motives, you can help them overcome any doubts or reluctance by reminding them of what they're going to gain by buying now. Find the pain or pleasure button and hit it, right? Remind them, and that's what they commit to. You can't make it up. has to be what they're, what they're concerned about. Willingness not only has to be there at the start of the buying process, but it also has to be checked on regularly to make sure it remains intact. Just as an unwilling buyer can become willing, a willing buyer can become unwilling. So you just talk about nurturing their motivation and their willingness to buy, right? Don't just, uh, well, I think the next thing I highlighted sums it up great. Now, willingness in a shift is a precious thing. Nurture it, support it, and appreciate it. You must help people find confidence and clarity if they are to become willing buyers in a shifted market, right? So he's talking about, and this is where I gave the example of um, uncertainty kills deals. People really don't like not knowing what's going to happen. They just really don't. They want to know what's going to happen. So that's what he's talking about there. Three ways to energize buyer urgency. Number one, become the local economist of choice. Number two, help them tap into their why. Number three, address buyer reluctance. Your goal is to round out their economic understanding and market knowledge so they have a complete picture. Plus, who are they getting their information from, right? CNN? You know, uh, their dumbass neighbor? Um, their their mother, father, are, are they real estate professionals? Probably not. Their uncle. I can't tell you how many deals I had died because somebody talked to their neighbor. Their fucking neighbor. You know, their neighbor is not even real estate. And I, always, I ask, hey, there's a neighbor in real estate. No, but they saw on TV. Boom. There you go. So part of your process and the shift and maybe all the time is to educate um, your buyers and sellers um, about the market. So they have a complete picture, right? I need to do a much better job at that too, by the way. If they sell and then they buy during a seller's market, they will get more when they sell and then pay more when they buy. When they sell and then buy in a buyer's market, they will get less from this sale, but they'll be able to make it up with greater savings when they buy. In the end, home ownership is best viewed as a long-term investment, just like the stock market or any other sound investment. Short-term buying will always put anyone at the mercy of the market. That's a great way to explain it, right? Look, I realize now is not the best time to sell seller, but when you sell, you're going to make a you're going to get a great deal when you buy. Yeah, you're taking a hit now on the sell, but man, you're going to get a lot of value when you buy. So it's kind of trading, and then flip it, right? Yeah, you know, the market's hot and uh, it's a lot more competitive and all that. And um, you know what? Uh, when when you sell, you're going to get way more money. So when you go out and buy, yeah, you're maybe not getting the best deal when you buy, but you're making a ton of money when you sell, right? And he's pointing out that only when you're trying to do it over the short term are you put at risk, right? Over the long term, these things work. The key here is not to appear to be self-serving or simply offering up your own opinions, right? This he's talking about when you're educating the buyer and trying and overcoming these objections. You need to point out to them how actually it is a good time to buy, you know, if it is, if it's not, don't, but if it is, which most of the time it is, market expectations are a powerful source of motivation for buyers 
and you want to be the one setting these expectations. You are the expert. Don't let them learn that shit from CNN, right? Or God forbid their neighbor, Mabel, only watches as the world turns, you know? The Bettys and Berries of this world think they know everything, start talking, ruin your deal because you didn't take the time to educate them. If you take the time to educate them, what he's saying is, if you take the time to educate them about the market, you can't make them change their mind, but at least all the information they're getting in the future is going through the filter you gave them, right? And often that will require you to tap into their motivation and keep them tapped into it from the first time you meet all the way through closing. And what he's talking about here is buyers in a buyer's market, even after they commit to buying and they sign a contract may walk away because of the Bettys and Berries, right? Focus on their motivation and hit it. Uh, four strategies to overcome buyer reluctance. Number one, why wait? The hazards of timing the market. Number two, trade up. The opportunity of a down market. Number three, less is more. Narrowing the field. Number four, find a best buy. Get while well, the getting's good. If they are planning on trading up, you will need to highlight how saving on the larger home purchase will offset any loss on the sale of their current home. Same thing we we're just discussing before, right? Barry Schwartz, psychologist and author of The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less, states there's a point where all the choices start to be not only unproductive, but counterproductive, a source of pain, regret, worry about missed opportunities and unrealistically high expectations. This is fear of loss opportunity or fear of loss of better opportunity, right? You got to manage that. We discussed that before. Some people want to see every option before moving forward. Some people can't make a choice about an opportunity because they're afraid there's another opportunity that's even better. And by excluding, boom. And what we're saying here is actually from studies, excluding is exactly what you need to do to help people make a buying, buying choice, right? 16 options is not good. Three is better. One aspect of less is more theme can help you overcome buyer reluctance is a best buyer, a best buy list. This is a list you have compiled to the current best buys in the market. And this is referencing to checking the MLS or your private deals. If you're working with wholesalers, whatever, um, every day or once a week or during some period of time, right. And sending it out to list. You, you basically are acting as an, um, aggregator and you're pulling all this information and then you're sorting it, filtering it out and putting what you think are the best buys out there. Right. Just try and create some urgency, get people to do something. I remember a lot of a lot of uh, real estate agents doing that during the crash, 2008, 2009. I remember that at the end of the day, building buyer urgency is about expert knowledge of the market, careful consultation on their personal wants and needs skill at communicating the opportunities of the market and assertiveness in challenging their thinking, right? So your work just got a lot harder. What are you going to do? Cry about it? Doesn't help. Creative financing begins with simply knowing where the bottom line sits for seller, buyer, or lender. You got to know what everybody wants and needs to get that shit done. And are we done? Almost. I think we are. Oh, we are done. Excellent. All right. So next week on part five, we're going to start on page 223. And I think 
that will wrap up the end. So part five will be the end and part six will be the review of the entire book where I go back and read all the highlighted parts and put together a little book for you guys. So it's coming soon. So go ahead and mark your page, dog ear it, or put in your bookmark, page 223. Thank you for following along. Um, I get a lot of help out of this. I got some comments, feedback. I get some help from this. The um, listens aren't as good because I bet you can just go get the audio book and get it read to you much better. So I'm hoping, you know, just trying to be a little bit more entertaining while I do it. I am enjoying doing it and I'm getting something out of it. So I hope you are too. And speaking of which, if you enjoy this podcast, stop what you're doing. Go rate and review on iTunes if you haven't already. Come on, just do it. Even if you don't have an iPhone, you can download iTunes on your computer and just go do it. Really helps out. Um, that's how we're going to grow the podcast. You want this podcast to keep going and you like the content on the podcast. Remember, you're not paying anything for it. Take two minutes, please. Hook a brother up and go rate and review on iTunes. All right. I really do appreciate it. Also, share this podcast. Tell your friends about it. Share it via social media. Put it in your blog. Um, if you want me to be on your podcast, you want me to do something, hey, man, I don't mind. Let's do something, right? Let's let's try and get this out there. The only way this works is if we greatly increase the number of people listening, right? That is if you like the podcast. If you don't, don't do any of that shit. Stop listening. Move on to somebody else. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash investors. Or Facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. And even if you can't attend, I do stream these live. So just go like the page on Facebook and you'll see it. Or you can even listen to it as a podcast. So no excuses, all right? Hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And go, of course, you can go to YouTube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I do it every week and I mean it. Get off the couch, get off the sideline, get in the game, exercise, lose some weight, read some books, make some offers, close some deals, do something every day that gets you close to your goals. Even if it's one step and don't give up. I want to thank you for listening. I really do appreciate your attention until the next podcast. Crush all the things.